Well, I think it's ironic that he is considered a patron saint of soldiers because he actually was a conscientious object, but he was a good soldier before that. And the most common image you see of, of St. Martin is him on his horse, cutting his cloak in half, giving it to the beggar, which is beautiful, but he wasn't really even a Christian at the time. <laughs> this month's saint, known as the first recorded conscientious objector, is ironically most recognized as a soldier, is the patron of soldiers, and now shares his feast day with Veterans Day here in the U.S., the same day the armistice of World War I, the war to end all wars, is celebrated around the world. We are going to discover how this fourth century saint became wildly popular and his connections to our own diocese. I'm Annie Daniel, and this is For All the Saints. The birth date of St. Martin of Tours is contested with some saying 316 and others 336. What we do know for certain was that he was the son of a Roman soldier and was born in the Roman province of Pannonia, which is today uh, Hungary. Uh, I'm Father Timothy Castor, pastor of St. Francis of Assisi here in Sturgis and St. Mary Star of the Sea in Newell. His parents were pagan, uh, but at the age of 10, um, he decided he wanted to be a Christian. And so he entered the, the roles of the catechumens. A catechumen is a Christian convert under instruction before baptism. At that time in the church, the sacrament of reconciliation wasn't fully understood, so many people remained catechumens for as long as possible. People would try to put it off to their deathbed if they could, so that's what Martin did. And his conversion came about um, when he was a soldier in the Roman army, uh, following in his, his father's footsteps. Um, and he was stationed in the, the city of Amiens, in France, and um, it was a very cold winter, uh, freezing temperatures outside, and he was um, riding into the city on his horse, and uh, the, the cloak that they would wear covered not only the soldier on the horse, but the back end of the horse as well, it was huge. And as he rode into the gate, he saw this beggar naked on the you know, ground, um, freezing to death, and so Martin took his cape and his sword and cut it in half and gave half of it to the beggar. And to the amusement of everybody around, they thought, because now Martin looked ridiculous with half a cape on, but he just couldn't bear to see this man freeze to death. And uh, so that night, in a dream, uh, Jesus appeared to him, surrounded by angels, wearing that half cloak and saying, Behold, Martin, though still a catechumen, he has given me his cloak to wear. And at that moment, Martin decided now was the time to be baptized. Shortly after this experience, when he was around 20, he was summoned before Emperor Julian to receive a war bounty for his faithful service. In that moment, however, Martin was moved to refuse it. Up to now, he said to the emperor, I have served you as a soldier. Allow me henceforth to serve Christ. Give the bounty to these others who are going out to battle. I am a soldier of Christ, and it is not lawful for me to fight. He became the first conscientious objector in recorded history. And, uh, um, of course, his, his commanding officer was, was disgusted with this and, and uh, wouldn't let him leave. And, and he said, you, you just are, you know, you're just a coward. You know, you're using this 
religion thing as an excuse because you don't want to fight. And he said, okay, uh, there, there's a battle tomorrow. Um, put me in the front line and let me stay there and, and I'll show you that I'm not afraid to fight. Well, um, during the night, the opposing army came and, and pled for terms of peace. The battle was called off and the uh, commanding officer said, okay, you get up, go away and sent Martin away. Upon leaving the army, Martin became a monk, seeking out the holy bishop Hilary of Poitiers and becoming his disciple. He was ordained a priest by Bishop Hilary, and his zeal was so great he traveled back to his home to convert his family and succeeded in bringing his mother into the church. While in that region, he spoke out so forcefully against the Arian heresy that he was publicly scourged and forced out of the area. After some time, he made his way back to France and began to follow the Lord in solitude. Soon other hermits and holy men joined him, and the community became a monastery. Martin lived a, you know, a, a monastic life um, outside of the city of Tours um, and gathered a lot of monks uh, around him and became very widely renowned you know, for his holiness of, of life and um, his counsel and everything. And uh, so the people in the nearby city wanted him have him as a bishop, you know, and um, he refused, absolutely. He would not leave his monastery for that. So they came up with a scheme. They, they sent this one man over to him to say his, his daughter was very sick and was dying and would he come and place his hands on her. And of course, Martin couldn't refuse to do that. So as he's going back into the city, the people just ambushed him and uh, demanded that he be their bishop. He was a good and holy bishop with a great zeal to win souls for Christ. The, the one of the things I love about him is his evangelistic techniques, okay? Because as bishop, uh, he would go out into the outlying um, villages, you know, where the, the country people lived and the, the pagan religion was still had, a, you know, a, a stranglehold on the people in these remote areas. And he would go in with a, with a group of monks and uh, tear down their temple. And... <laughs> and then build a church in its place, you know? And, and you might think, well, that's terribly intolerant and, you know, um, not very loving. Um, but you see that that was the language that people understood, you know? If, if Martin's God could, you know, protect him while, while he's tearing down their temple, that, then his God must be better than their God. So um, they would immediately convert to Christianity. And, um, he did this quite, in quite a few places. Sometimes when they would not, absolutely would not let him tear down their temple, he would then preach to them. And his words were so persuasive and so convincing that then the people themselves would tear down their own temple. <laughs> At the end of St. Martin's life, he received a premonition of his approaching death. He shared it with his disciples who pleaded with him to stay with them longer. Lord, he prayed, if thy people still need me, I will not draw back from the work. Thy will be done. When his final sickness came, he lay with his eyes and hands raised to heaven until the brothers begged him to turn on one side to rest his body a little. Allow me, my brethren, he answered, to look towards heaven rather than to earth, that my soul may be ready to take its flight to the Lord. St. Martin was venerated almost immediately upon his death as a saint because of his example and because he was so well known. The reason we know so much about him 
is because one of his followers, one of his monks, Sulpicius Severus, um, wrote his life, wrote his life story. Uh, and from firsthand eyewitness accounts, also from his own interviews with Martin and interviews with other people that were, that were in his monastery. And um, so it's one of the first books that really attempted to be an authentic history in the way we think of a historical or a autobiographical book today. And, but it was, it was just filled with all these stories of miracles, you know, and written in this very, you know, exciting, lively style that is, it's fun to read even today. And um, it, it just became like a bestseller, <laughs> you know, oh. all throughout Europe. And people loved this, this Life of St. Martin by Sulpicius, and, uh, who also be, was named a saint. Um, and as a result, uh, there were more churches and monasteries dedicated to St. Martin in Europe at one time than any other saint, uh, excepting Our Lady. It is interesting to note that he was the first saint that had not been martyred in the early church, thereby encouraging others to strive for holiness in their daily lives. His relics, and especially his cape, were treasured by the people of France. The building where St. Martin's cloak was preserved as a precious relic came to be known as the capella, from the Latin word for cape. This eventually became the English word for chapel. He was celebrated on several feast days. The one feast day that is still observed today, of course, is November 11th, um, which is still in some places called Martinmas. In Europe, uh, it's my understanding that what we call uh, Indian summer is called St. Martin's summer. Due to his association with peacekeeping, his feast was traditionally a time to sign peace treaties. It was not by coincidence that the signing of the Treaty of Versailles that ended the First World War fell on St. Martin's feast day. The French took it as a particular sign of his continual care for them, and he remains a patron of France, in addition to soldiers, winemakers, beggars, and tailors. I think it's clear by listening that Father Castor has a great devotion to St. Martin. In fact, before he was ordained a diocesan priest in 2001, he had been a brother in a Benedictine abbey in Massachusetts. Well, I, you know, I read the, the story of St. Martin of Tours uh, by uh, St. Sulpicius Severus, and I was just thrilled with uh, his life and thought he would be a good model for monastic life. Um, my family on my mother's side uh, originated in, in Hungary and so there was that connection you know him being from what is now Hungary I just kind of like the name frankly <laughs> and yeah so I, I we were permitted to suggest you know like three choices three names and one of those names if they were if it was considered suitable would be chosen so that was my first preference, was, uh, was Martin, and that's what I was called for a few years. His name served as a continual reminder and encouragement in monastic life. And the other thing that kind of made it meaningful to me is, is that the superior of the monastery was truly the holiest man I ever knew. You know, he's one of those people that you felt like you were in the presence of Christ when he was celebrating Mass, and he's just a remarkable man. And one of the big reasons I entered that monastery was because I wanted to be a disciple of this man, you know. 
And that, that relationship that I had with Father Cyril reminded me very much of the relationship of St. Sulpicius with St. Martin. And so, probably should have taken the name Sulpicius, but you know, I liked Martin better, so. <laughs> When it comes to St. Martin, the connection to our diocese runs deep. The Benedictine sisters have had the name St. Martin for their community since their inception. Father Michael Malloy, Vicar General and Vicar for Clergy in addition to Director of the Office of Worship, shares that with us. I asked Sister Mary Wegner, who's the uh, prioress now, and Sister Eleanor Solon, who's a, got a, gra a, a vast sort of knowledge about the history of our diocese, and um, they came up with two uh, possible explanations, neither of which they're sure about. One of them is that um, Bishop Martin Marty, who I believe was the Bishop of the Dakota Territory, this was before we became a diocese, um, was instrumental in bringing the, the five Swiss sisters over who eventually um, located in Sturgis and became the sisters, the, the Benedictine order that we know today. And because of he, his name was Martin, they're, they're, they're one of the speculations is that this, well, first of all, Sturgis, and then when they moved down here um, to Rapid City, this was named in honor of St. Martin because of Bishop Marty. Um, the other story, or the other thing that Sister Elner related was that Benedict himself had a great devotion to Martin. And part of that tied up with the fact that Martin was the first saint who wasn't martyred. Um, and Benedict had a great devotion to him in his own life. The, the Benedictines are the ones that took over St. Martin's monastery after he died in Ligoget in France, which is still in operation today. So there's always been a real close connection between St. Martin and the Benedictines. It's important to note that Bishop Marty was himself a Benedictine, and when he entered religious life, he took on the name Martin. He was the one who went to to um, Switzerland and asked some sisters if they wouldn't come over to the Dakota Territory, you know, to be missionaries. And so they said yes. And But the other reason they came was that there was a persecution of Catholics over there. And these sisters came over here just in case the other ones had to leave. It was in 1889 that the five sisters arrived in Sturgis, Dakota Territory, to begin to serve the people of God. Five sisters came over and um, their first house was an old tavern and that leaked, that leaked when it rained. But within six days they had opened up, up a summer school for girls. That summer school soon blossomed into St. Martin's Academy that served Catholic youth from the entire region. With the growth of the school, the community grew as well, and a convent and chapel were built. Up until 1991, St. Martin's Academy formed generations of Catholics. Ramona Sobers was one such person. Well, um, actually, my family lived out in a rural community at Stoneville, where my dad was a postmaster and we moved to town in 1939 specifically so that we could go to St. Martin's. So I was in the sixth grade at the time and uh, uh, graduated in 1946. Sister Yvette Mallow is another. Born in New Mexico, her family moved to Rapid City when she was 11. When we moved up here, my brother, my older brother and I came by bus and the rest of the family came by car. Well, somewhere between here and Albuquerque, we passed under a hill, 
And I said, oh, Bob, look, there's a statue of St. Joseph. And my uh, eyes went blank again, and we went, we came to Rapid City. Well, about four years later, um, I was about ready to go into high school, and the parish priest said, you know, there's a Catholic high school in Sturgis. Why don't we just go visit it? And I said, sure, that'd be fun. So I went up there, and there was that statue. Yeah, <laughs> there was a statue standing on the hill where I'd seen it four years before. I felt, I felt welcome. So I entered when I was sophomore in high school, and um, it's been a good ride. Sister celebrated the 60th anniversary of her vows this summer. She happened to be the last sister to take final vows in the St. Martin's Chapel in Sturgis. Ramona, who has helped and continues to help with the restoration and preservation of the chapel, currently gives tours and shares her enthusiasm and information about the history of the building. Well, the altar has always been really a special altar. It's spectacular. And the stained glass windows, uh, I think, and the murals, uh, just the whole chapel. It was uh, a wonderful spiritual place. Simply put, well, it's dear to our hearts. A favorite story of Ramona's is about the murals that adorn the ceiling. You know the interesting story about how the murals were painted. An itinerant man came and offered to do some work. Father Columan said, well, can you paint? And he said, yes. He said, can you paint pictures? And the man said, yes, and his name was Stahl. And Father showed him pictures of holy cards, and he said, can you copy these? And the man said, I can. So he painted all of them, all of those murals that are on the wall. A funny thing, I were, we were talking about the murals, and one time when I was doing a presentation for, a, I don't know, one of the community groups, I mentioned that I thought that Mr. Stull was an angel. And one of the ladies took me literally. She thought that I really, well, maybe I really do. <laughs> maybe he really was. <laughs> Let's get back to the story of St. Martin becoming bishop. Susan Safford tells us about it. I'm Susan Safford. I'm a consecrated virgin and director of pastoral ministries for the Diocese of Rapid City. I came back because Father Castor has mass there on Saturday morning. So every once in a while, if I have time, and I'll go up there for uh, Saturday morning mass. And uh, there was one Saturday when I stayed afterwards and uh, I was praying, and after I prayed, I was wandering around the chapel and looking at all of the beautiful windows and the paintings on the walls and the ceiling and the artwork of Benedict and Scholastica and just a just an amazing, um, beautiful church that the sisters um, really were behind back in the day. When she visits a new church, she is in the habit of looking around at the various artwork and trying to identify the people and stories that are depicted and you can identify them by the symbols that are with them in the picture or in the window, as the case may be. As she looked around the St. Martin's Chapel, there was one that she couldn't place. I got to one, there was no card and there was no identification and I didn't, I didn't recognize him. It was a man who was a bishop, clearly he had a mitre on, and he was holding a crozier and a book, and there was a little bird at his feet. And I thought, who is this? I don't know who this is. And I was trying to identify the bird, and I thought, it kind of looks like a pigeon. Is it a pigeon? Who would this be? And then I thought, huh, I don't see St. Martin of Tours anywhere else in this church that is 
St. Martin's. And so surely he's here somewhere. Is this St. Martin of Tours? That was what came to my mind. Is this St. Martin of Tours? And I looked up online St. Martin of Tours because I had always associated him with the image of the soldier uh, cutting his cloak in half with the sword and giving half to the, to the poor man. That was the image of St. Martin I knew, and that's the image that's in Terra Sancta uh, here in, in Rapid City. So I looked up Saint, when I looked up St. Martin of Tours, I discovered that after he was a soldier, after his conversion, he first became a monk, and then later he was named bishop, but he didn't want to become a bishop, as so many saints, they don't want the, the burden of, of the episcopacy. They want to live their life solely for the Lord and with the Lord in prayer. And so he, the story goes that he hid in a barn and when they came looking for him, the geese gave him away. There was a goose that was very loud that revealed his hiding place. And so now St. Martin of Tours is often pictured with a goose. It was a moment of revelation and reflection for her. And I thought, wow, that, this is St. Martin. This is St. Martin of Tours in another part of his life when he maybe not so willingly followed a call from, from the Lord um, to, to serve the people in a, in a greater way, as so often the Lord does. You know, he calls us to, he calls us in to ways and places that we think are, are too big for us or too much for us. Um, but he always gets his way, and, and he got his way with St. Martin, who, through his, through his vocation as a monk and hermit, first of all, but then later through his ministry as a bishop, uh, brought people to Christ and became a great saint. In 1963, the St. Martin's community moved from Sturgis to just outside Rapid City. The chapel that was built there is now part of the Terra Sancta Retreat Center and is known as the Holy Cross Chapel. Father Mike recalled what it felt like in that chapel when he first visited it after being assigned to the Diocese of Rapid City. I remember it always feeling um, just really beautiful and spacious and kind of glorious in those early days when I would come in here and think, wow, this is, um, this is an amazing space. And, and the, the, the uplift of it is just so, um, it's, it's like your whole being sort of goes up. This chapel also has a window depicting St. Martin. And what I see is there's such a contrast in colors. Um, you have the image of Jesus, which is large and, and high and he's in uh, beautiful yellows and oranges, and around him are, are, are darker colors of purples, reds, some dark greens. And then down below, um, below Jesus, you have the image of St. Martin and the beggar, and they are also, they very much stand out. So the, the whole image is designed to really draw your attention to Jesus and, 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 and St. Martin and the beggar. And interestingly enough, the beggar probably is the most, um, pronounced because of the color of glass that they used really, really causes that to sort of pop out of the picture. Now, if you look at this window, that um, um, Martin's cloak is enveloping Martin and the beggar, and then it's reaching out to the world. And that, for me, is kind of like, kind of like our community is reaching out, you know, with Christ, Christ saying, you know, go do what you have to do and the sisters have gone out to be Christ to the world. They have served the people of God in seven states, Canada, Brazil, and Chile, through their apostolates of education, spirituality, and health care. 
Sister Yvette remembers when the community of St. Martin's moved from Sturgis to the site of the second monastery. And so when we moved down here, we had morning prayer, then we had mass, and then we processed out of the chapel and into these waiting buses, and every sister had a suitcase, thrown stuff on. Some of them had banners. And we came down here, and the chapel, this chapel was not built. It was just, they were just starting to build the, put the groundwork in. So the bishop was here, and he, you know, blessed the ground. And then we went into our temporary chapel, and we sang 120 verses of, Holy God, we praise your name. That's an exaggeration. But, and then um, we said a wonderful prayer. Then all the sisters went uh, on their way to, you know, settle in. And at noon, noon found all the sisters in the chapel for the noon prayer. And at four o'clock, all the sisters were in the chapel for Vespers. In 2009, the sisters moved again to the third St. Martin's Monastery. When we moved from here to there, we had morning praise, then we had mass, and then this, some of the sisters who couldn't walk, we had waiting vehicles. And those of us who could walk, we walked in procession up to the new place. We went into the chapel and we sang 500 verses of Holy God, we praise your name. And then Father Daesh um, gave a lovely talk and, you know, a prayer of blessing for that. And all the sisters went about um, moving in. And at noon, the sisters were at prayer. And at four o'clock, the sisters were at prayer. So it's like for 127 years, that rhythm of, you know, of prayer has never stopped. That's pretty impressive. This constancy of prayer and their witness and service has been and continues to be a great blessing to the people of the diocese. I am so grateful to be, to be able to be a part of that. As we approach the Feast of St. Martin, we give thanks for his holy example. To think about him at a relatively young age making this kind of dramatic change is, is really inspirational. I would think it would be inspirational for young people to say, you know, you can be 18 years old and you can know what it is that God wants you to do and, and you can give yourself over to a great ministry or a great service. You don't have to be, you know, 65 years old before you figure that out. And, and that just hopefully is an inspiration to young people listening to this to say, yeah, I, I'm really gonna ask the Lord what he wants from me because, because yeah, I, I, wanna, I wanna do something for him that is, is, is meaningful and rich and purposeful. And we look at St. Martin and say, that can happen. That can really happen. St. Martin of Tours, pray for us. This episode was written and produced by me, Annie Daniel, with technical and production help by Jacques Daniel. Special thanks to Fathers Michael Malloy and Timothy Castor, Sister Yvette Mallow, Ramona Sabers, and Susan Safford. To view images of the windows mentioned and described in this episode, links to prayers, and a bonus story from Father Castor, please visit www.rapidcitydiocese.org forward slash podcast. For All the Saints is produced out of the Office of Faith Formation for the Diocese of Rapid City. God bless.
So in my research, um, I found that the traditional meal for St. Martin's Feast Day is a goose. Is that right? Probably the goose is a traditional meal for St. Martin because he wanted to eat that goose. <laughs> I would have. <laughs>